0: haven't already turned, please turn with me to the book of Galatians. You'll find it towards the end of your New Testament, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Before our short break, we've seen the Apostle Paul in this letter explain to us the gospel. He's laid out clearly the good news that saves us, Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. We've also seen that it's only possible to become a Christian By placing faith in Jesus. We've seen what biblical conversion looks like. And then last time we saw how the gospel unifies us in Jesus. Today, in our next passage that was just read for us, we'll see how the gospel intersects with hypocrisy. But first, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see and savor Jesus this morning. Father, would you stir our affections for you as we consider all that you have done for us in opening up this way for us to have fellowship with you forever. Father, we pray this in the majestic name of Christ. Amen. When our passage, if you're taking notes, we'll see three things that Paul does in response to hypocrisy that he witnesses in the church. So three things that'll form our outline. First, we see he rebukes. Second, he reasons. And third, he expounds a reality. Rebuke, reason, and reality. That's where we're heading this morning. First, in verses 11 through 14, a rebuke. Our passage takes place in the city of Antioch. It was 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem, it was like little Rome. The Roman leaders put lots of resources in the city, so it was quite a cosmopolitan place. It had an arena and a large library. It also had tons of diversity. The church in Antioch was Apostle Paul's home church. It was his sending church. So after he went on a missionary journey to plant churches, he'd always come back home to Antioch, report on what happened, spend time with them, pray with them. And on this specific occasion, Paul's back home, he's in Antioch, and Peter is visiting the city. Peter's in town, and Paul approaches him in what's got to be one of the more tense and awkward moments in the New Testament. It was an embarrassing moment. It's always odd when an argument breaks out in church, and for one, this argument, this one took place at the church potluck. Everyone is supposed to be having a good time, eating good food. How awkward would it be if Glenn and I started arguing publicly at our spring picnic later on this month? One of us got out the microphone and started rebuking the other in front of everyone. It would be embarrassing. It would be odd. In the case of our text, you don't merely have two pastors in rebuke. You have two apostles. It's striking. It's quite remarkable. Paul, the apostle, rebukes Peter, the apostle. These were Christians forgiven through Christ, Apostles of Christ, honored in the churches for their leadership, doing great things for God, used mightily by God, and Paul rebukes Peter. Why? In verse 11 Peter changed his eating habits, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. It's important to remember that in ancient times, eating was a cultural event. No one has ever emailed me and said, Pastor, I saw you at India Palace and you were eating with Don Juan. I can't believe it. My family and I are changing membership and changing churches. That has literally never happened to me. But back then, it was a big deal. It was a sacred time. It's why people were outraged when Jesus would sit with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and have meals with them. It communicated a sense of fellowship. To the first century Jew, far more surprising than Peter stopping eating food with the Gentiles would have been the fact that he started eating with them in the first place. The Old Testament laws stated you couldn't eat unclean foods and you couldn't eat in the presence of those who were unclean. To show Peter that the ceremonial law was finished, God actually sent him a vision. You can read it in Acts chapter 10. Maybe take some time later on this afternoon. You could go back and read this account for yourself. In Acts chapter 10, God sends Peter a vision. Peter sees a great sheet full of the animals forbidden to him in the Old Testament law. And he hears a voice. And this voice cries out and says, Kill and eat. Do not call anything impure that God has now made clean. God was making it clear to Peter He's making it clear to him that the clean laws have been fulfilled in Christ. Sit with the Gentiles, eat their food, be together. And Peter did. Immediately in Acts chapter 10, Peter Peter meets a repentant Gentile, Cornelius, who receives Christ and is born again. Peter sees a true life example that God accepts men from every ethnicity. Peter got it. He sits with Bill and Chico and Bonfis and Donnie Joe and Padmini and he enjoys their Gentile food. Now, Jew couldn't eat fish without scales, but now Peter enjoys lobster and crab. He wakes up in the morning to the delicious smell of sausage and bacon radiating in his flat. He sits down and he eats it with a smile on his face. He practices what he affirms. Until What? Until there's a knock on the door and the circumcision party walks in. No sooner than they walk in do we see Peter put down his proverbial fork and retreat to eating only with those who are ethnically Jewish. Why did he do this? Verse 12 says he was afraid of these men. Perhaps he feared their criticism. It's difficult here to say if the circumcision group are the same people as the men from James or if they were two separate groups. James was an influential pastor in Jerusalem and could have sent men to Antioch for a specific purpose. Or maybe these men sinfully, sinfully claimed James's authority. They went in his name, but they changed his message. It would appear that the circumcision party at least refers to a Jesus plus Jewish group who required circumcision and the practicing of the law to be saved. Either way, the most important thing isn't figuring out exactly who those two sets of men are, but looking at Peter's reaction to them. Peter already had this vision from God. He knew what was right. He hadn't changed his convictions or belief, but he stopped eating with the Gentiles. Maybe there were separate tables set up for folks from a Jewish background, and pretty soon Peter kind of slides over to them begins only to eat with them It starts sending signals to everyone that maybe the laws aren't that bad after all. Maybe they really are a requirement for salvation. You can imagine the insecurity the other believers felt when they saw a leader in the church, an apostle, Peter, start changing his actions. Paul goes further with his rebuke of hypocrisy in verse 14 and says, Peter is not acting in step or literally in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul says an interesting phrase in, in the Greek. He says, orthopodeo. The prefix ortho means straight. You go to, to an orthodontist to straighten your teeth. Podeo is where we get the word podiatrist, a foot doctor. It's where we get our word to walk. Paul says Peter's not ortho walking with the gospel, he's not straight walking. And this word walk is actually a pretty significant metaphor in the Bible. To walk is not simply physically to go from one place to the other, but in scripture it refers to the whole course of your life, your feelings, your motivations, your behavior, the direction of your life. Paul's saying, you're not walking straight in the path of the gospel, Peter. You've veered off. You're off course. I don't know if they still do it today, but in the old days, in some countries, when a policeman would pull someone over for suspicious driving, they'd ask you to get out, and they would draw a line on the ground, and they'd ask if you could walk the line. They want to know whether you're sober or whether you're drunk, to see whether you're fit to drive a vehicle safely. What Paul is saying is that the gospel has a trajectory, it has a line. It's a set of truths going in one direction. It's the truth that you and I are sinners. That we're weak and rebellious, that we've lived according to our own self salvation strategies. That through our rejection of a holy God of the universe and his ways, we are due death and judgment. The Bible says we are condemned in our sin. But that through Jesus Christ, the entire law of God has been fulfilled. He lived perfectly according to the law. He never sinned, and he died on the cross, taking upon himself our sins, so that when we believe in him, we are completely accepted, completely reconciled to him. Now, this gospel we always hold out to you is what saves you, but it also has implications. The gospel, in a sense, sends out lines through your life, and you have to bring every part of your life in line with the gospel. For instance, the law of God says racism is a sin. What's fascinating is Paul doesn't just say racism is a sin or a violation of God's law, though it is. He says racism is not in line with the gospel. It's not in step with the good news. He says racism is forgetting you're saved by grace. What he's saying when he says to Peter, Peter, you're treating people on the basis of their race. But see, remember, God didn't treat you on the basis of your race or your culture. He's saying racism is always a form of works righteousness. It's born of a desire to feel that we're in some way better or more righteous than someone else. It's forgetting that we are all saved by grace. It's a way of saying that you don't need to be covered by the blood of Jesus, but what you need is special DNA or genetic code coursing through your veins. The blood of Christ, which cleanses us from our sin, will help us fight any racism that pulses into our hearts. This is why we want to see the gospel proclaimed and walked in line with. Across ethnic lines, in this church and in this city. In our old Redeemer Villa, when we first planted the church, our family lived there, lived where our offices were, and we often hosted these monthly potlucks. I've shared the story with, with some of you before, but in one of our early potlucks, it was a great feast, a great party. The very next morning, one of our neighbors came up to Gloria And she said, I have to confess something to you. The whole night prior when you had this party, my face was glued to my window and I was staring into your courtyard the entire night. And I can't believe what I saw. And Gloria's thinking, oh no, what did you see? And she said, I saw Africans walking in with food. I saw Indians walking in with food. I saw East Asians walking in with food. I saw Westerners walking in with food and you guys were smiling and eating together. Why would you ever want to do that? Now Gloria, seeing a wide open door to the gospel, said, it's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus has torn down every dividing wall. He has broken every barrier. He unites us in himself because he loved us first. We love him. We are now saved as one big family. This friend's jaw literally dropped to the ground. She had never heard this message of hope and reconciliation and unity See, unity around the table is stunning to those who don't understand the gospel. Our actions must back up our words. We can't say we're all one in Christ if we are segregated. What do our actions say about this? Do our friendships, our dinner invitations, our ministry partnerships demonstrate our commitment to the unity and community we have in Christ? Do you see how what Peter was doing was not in line or in step with the gospel? This is why Paul rebukes Peter. It sounds harsh, and it would have been harsh if it was not a gospel issue. But since it's a gospel issue, the most loving thing Paul could have done for Peter and the believers who witnessed the incident was to rebuke him. If Paul hadn't rebuked Peter, this heresy could have split the church. And today, we'd have a Jewish branch of Christianity, and then an everybody else branch of Christianity over here. Rebuke is sometimes needed. Often we hesitate to rebuke others because we are keenly conscious of our own sins. We know that that finger could be pointed right back at us. And we do need to take the log out of our own eyes before we point out the speck in someone else's. Well, some of us, we fear rebuking others because we're afraid they won't like us anymore. We'll create some tension. They'll think poorly of us. We should never rebuke in a temper tantrum. We must speak the truth in love because we love Jesus and we love our brother or sister. But here's a slightly different question to ask yourself. Have I been rebuked lately? Notice I didn't ask you if you've rebuked someone else. But have you been rebuked? If you answered no, I wonder if you've made yourself unrebukable. And here's what I mean. Perhaps people are afraid to confront you because you always disregard their suggestions. Maybe you give godly sounding disclaimers every time you talk about the decisions you've made. Who can question you if you have all these godly disclaimers? Maybe you don't confess your sin with others. Maybe you're always right. Maybe you get defensive. Anyone points out something that they see in your life. Friends, surround yourself with men if you're a man and women if you're a woman. Surround yourself with people who love you and invite them to speak into your life. Invite them to correct you if you drift. Ask them to help you walk in line with the gospel in your marriage, in your parenting, in your singleness, in your job, in your ministry, in your friendships. Give them an open invitation Ask them to speak into your life. Make it easy on them. In fact, all of us should be able to say, this is someone or these are people who I've gone up to and I've asked them to speak into my life. Do you have someone like that? Are you that person for someone? The greatest thing that could have happened to Peter is to have a Paul who would speak into his life. This is also why church discipline is the most loving thing a church can do for both the unrepentant sinner and the entire church membership. We need each other to point us to Christ when we wander away. Well, In this case, we don't see that Peter repents, although we can surmise that he did since Paul does not call him a false brother. And it is clear from earlier in Galatians and others of Paul's writings that he believes Peter was a genuine believer who has repented. You might also be asking as you study this passage this week, why didn't Paul rebuke Peter privately? Did you wonder that? Well, he might have. We don't know what else went behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, it had to be public because Peter's sin was public. Everyone saw what was going on. It was the elephant in the room. And Paul needed to take care, take care of it because it was leading others astray. Look at verse 13. Even the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When we walk out of step with the gospel, it leads others astray. Even Barnabas, even this great church leader was led astray because of Peter's actions. Oh well, friends, none of us lives and lives on an island. None of us live, lives secluded from others. Even our private sins affect others. Even if you don't see immediately how it happens, even your private sins affect the lives of others. Your idleness and laziness affects others. Your anger affects others. Your lust and pornography addiction affects others. Your greed and stinginess affects others. Your rudeness, how you treat people, affects others. Remember how prominent you are. You're not an apostle, but you are prominent somewhere, either in your job, in your ministry, or in your home. If you're a mom or dad, you are the prominent one, at least for your kids. Your actions affect others. They are watching your life. So Paul was shining a spotlight on Peter's hypocrisy. Peter's sudden observance of Jewish laws was implying that Gentiles had to live like Jews to become a part of the people of God. If you think about it, Peter's actions then put him in the same category as his false brothers. A Jesus plus something gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. Here's a warning for us. Our behavior can undermine our belief. Our behavior can undermine our belief. Unless we think this can't happen to us, be warned. Even the most well-known Christian leaders are liable to sin. James chapter 3 verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. Let that sink in for a minute. We all stumble in many ways. No Christian reaches a point where he or she is without sin. There's no one who is infallible. Well Paul rebuked Peter which showed that the gospel function as an authority over Peter. Apostles fall short of the glory of God. Pastors, elders, church leaders, every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth fall short. A question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this Is my life in step with the truth of the truth of the gospel? Is my life in line with the truths of the gospel? Am I practicing what I believe? Am I practicing what I preach? Is the gospel dictating my life? Another way to ask is to ask, am I living a gospel-centered life? We need to be careful that we're actually doing this. It's easy for us at church to talk all day about theology and then to say, well, we're living a gospel-centered life and we're a gospel-centered church. But all we're doing is attaching gospel to everything. And pretty soon on the bulletin, we're advertising gospel-centered bingo nights and gospel-centered picnics in the park. Now, when we say we're preaching the gospel to ourselves and living in step with it, what we mean is we're reminding ourselves of the finished work of Christ, his death and resurrection, and meditating on the fullness of of our salvation, and then living out the implications of it. Here's an example of this. Meditating on the cross will also help us root out any fear of man that creeps into our hearts. The gospel does not beget fear. It begets confidence and hope and boldness. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. Friend, if you come this morning tense and depressed with fear or anxiety, maybe this anxiety has caused you to walk out of line with the gospel, you need to stop And ponder God's intentions towards you. You need to ponder that he gave his son to die for you. If you have trusted in Christ, the gospel means that the almighty God is for you. Not against you. Romans 8 speaks to you today. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who raised from the dead, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. A life that sees and believes this gospel says, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Even when the circumcision party is around the corner, ready to spread nasty rumors about you and tear you down, ruin your reputation and mock you, even then you can stand strong in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Because he who did not spare his own son is the same God who is with you now. Friend, has fear of man caused you to walk out of step with the gospel? Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel this morning. Luther put it more graphically in his commentary on Galatians 2. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's Christian growth. That's why we don't move on from the gospel to more advanced stuff. This is it. There's no spiritual quantum physics to move on to. You never get beyond this. Our faith is simple enough for a child to understand. We cling to Christ. It is our job to bring everything in our lives in line with the thrust and direction of the gospel. And so our work is a continual realignment process. So Paul rebukes Peter. Peter, get your life in line, in step with the good news. But there's a second thing we see in our passage a reason for the rebuke. The second point in our text this morning in verses 15 through 18 is a reason. Paul sketches out in his reply to Peter the fundamental reason why his behavior has compromised the gospel. It opposes God's justification. The word justify is used eight times in the book of Galatians, but three times in verse 16 alone. The verb refers to God's verdict of not guilty on the day of judgment. It doesn't mean the same thing as to be forgiven. Forgiven means you've done something wrong and mercy is shown. Justify means not only have you not done anything wrong, but you've done everything right. It's a legal term borrowed from the courts. It's it's the exact opposite of condemnation. So to condemn is to declare somebody guilty. But to justify is to declare someone not guilty, innocent, righteous. Now, if you're married, consider the following scenario. You, as the wife, just had a fight with your husband. Now, this is hypothetical, of course. Married ladies, I'm not saying this has ever happened to you. But on the off chance that you get into a fight with your husband and your husband has been unkind. Was that a laugh, Glenn? (laughs) Your husband's been unkind to you. You've fought. Now you make up and your husband puts his arm around you. And he says, you know what, honey? I forgive you. What are you going to say to that? You might start a whole nother fight because him forgiving you is implying that you're at fault. To be forgiven means you've done something wrong. Jesus forgives us, yes, but he goes even deeper than that. He justifies us. He makes it as if you've done everything right and you're as good as God demands. here's another illustration. Several decades ago, the president of the U.S. gave political justification to a doctor who was condemned and put in prison named Dr. Mudd. Have you ever wondered where that quote, your name is Mudd, comes from? Well, it comes from this man whose name was tarnished for fixing a man's foot. Back during the American Civil War, John Wilkes Booth just killed President Abraham Lincoln. And after Booth shot the president, he broke his foot in his getaway. Later he found a doctor named Dr. Mudd, and Dr. Mudd fixed his foot. They put the doctor in prison for aiding and abetting a criminal. They released him after four years, saying he innocently helped fix a man's leg. He wasn't trying to help an assassin. He didn't know this man. But it wasn't until a hundred years later when another president said he was fully justified. He didn't say he was forgiven, because to be forgiven implies guilt. And the president said he was justified and acted according to the perfect requirement of a doctor. When we say we're justified by God, it means that we are not merely forgiven. Friend, it means you are treated as righteous. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. To be justified is not to be improved, not to be decorated, not to be veneered, not to be patched up. It is a total and utter declaration of righteousness. And in Christ Jesus, God gives that to us. How does it come? How does justification come? Well, Paul tells us in the next verse, in verse 16, it is by faith. Is by faith in the work of Christ. But here's the fascinating thing. We've noticed this in our study of Galatians. Here's the fascinating thing. A great multitude of people like Jesus, don't they? There's no doubt about that. Many people will even say, Well, Jesus is the Son of God. He really did die on the cross, He rose from the dead. He's real. Jesus is great. We like Jesus. But then they add something to Jesus. They say, Jesus is great. But so are these other things over here as well. It's a Jesus plus something gospel, which is not really a gospel at all. It's a completely and utterly different religion. Our family had a bit of culture shock last week as we drove to be with the saints at Grace Church in Sharjah. It's an amazing church. The the saints there send their greetings to you. They're doing wonderfully well. As we arrived there, the traffic was wild, people were everywhere, people from all sorts of nations wearing all sorts of religious gowns and cultural dress, crosses everywhere, religious building after religious building after religious building, churches from denominations and organizations I had never even heard of. As I walked in, I told Anand the shock we had, I said, I didn't know there's so many different church buildings and denominations. And he went on to say, well, most of these groups really do love Jesus. They talk about Jesus. They love Jesus, but they also love their works. He said, most of them are fans of Jesus. They worship Jesus, but they also worship what they can do for Jesus. He went on to tell me they've created rituals that must be done in order to attain salvation. Now, here's the important thing you must understand. If you get anything out of the sermon this morning or out of the text this morning, I hope this is it. Friend, if you've never been in a church service before and you've just observed Christians, I hope you get this. If you've been confused about Christianity and didn't know what it really is, I hope you get this this morning. And here it is. You are not a Christian if you believe in Jesus plus anything else. You are not a Christian if you trust in Jesus and your works. You may think that you do Christian things according to what a Christian must do. You might wear the same clothes as others in this room. You may have the name Christian stamped on your birth certificate. Maybe you were born in a Christianized country. You may have been born to Christian parents, and all these things could be true of you. And at the same time, you may not be a Christian. A friend, I really hope you get this this morning. Even as I prayed this morning, I hope that this truth would be embedded on your minds. That to be a Christian doesn't mean simply that you believe in Jesus or even that you trust Jesus. To be a Christian means you believe that you are saved by Christ alone. You believe in just Jesus For your entire salvation. That's it. All other messages are imposters and false religions. Even if the word church is attached to their organization's name. A Christian is someone who is justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. That Christ has died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. That a person has repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus. Oh friend, if you've never done that, I urge you to do it today. It is the only way to be saved. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? In some ways, Christians are the least religious people around. We don't believe in good luck, in horoscopes, in the evil eye, or in fate. We don't believe in the world's promises or the world's curses. We don't believe in good works or religious rituals designed to save us. We don't aim to earn God's favor by performance. It's just faith. So this leads us to an interesting charge by Paul's opponents in verse 17. Paul's critics argued, well, your doctrine of justification through faith in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, is a highly dangerous doctrine. Paul, you're playing with fire. Fire. People still argue like this today. If God justifies bad people, what is the point of being good? Can't we just do as we like and live as we please? God has saved me. It's done. It's secure. I'm going to heaven, so let's party. Let's live it up. Let's do whatever we want. It's like winning the sin lottery. If Jesus' blood covers our sin, why do we need to renounce it? What incentive do we have to live for God? It's the accusation that Jesus is a servant of sin doing promotional work for the devil. Is Christ then responsible for our sin? Paul writes back sharply. Literally, he says, may it never be. Even more literally, it says a huge no, 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 no. May it never be. God forbid that Christ lead us into sin. Christ is not the agent of sin. Now, Paul writes, verse 18, if Peter, as a Jewish Christian, should try to reinstitute the law as an absolute authority for how one should walk, then he would be nullifying the premise that one should come to Christ alone for justification. Grace does not give license to sin, Christ does not give one incentive to sin. Now, verse 19, Paul says, as a Christian, I have experienced a reorientation of values so radical that it can only be compared to death. And new life. Paul says I have died to the law. And now I live for God. Salvation cannot be obtained in the old era of the law. And turning to the law again would only reveal their sin. So Paul turns the tables on his critics. Christ does not promote sin. It is those who actually live under the law. Who are revealed to be transgressors. Those who are Christians are a new creation. As we'll see in a minute. A Christian doesn't live it up in sin because Christ has saved us. A Christian can't do it because Christ is in them. So there's a rebuke. Paul rebukes Peter for not walking in line with the gospel, and then he gives a reason. He's justified, and then now he gives us a reality. That's the third point in our sermon this morning, in our text, in verses 19 through 21. A reality. Paul says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Why am I not under the law? Because the law's purpose has been fulfilled. It was on the cross that the law carried out its death penalty against us. Therefore, as far as the law is concerned, we were killed but now can live because Christ is in us. Paul shows us something surprising in these final verses. At least four things were nailed to the cross when Jesus died. One, Jesus himself was nailed to the cross through his arms and legs. Another was the public announcement that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. A third thing nailed to the cross was our debt of sin. But here's the surprise. Paul gives it to us there in verse 20. Here's the surprise. If you're a follower of Christ, then you were nailed to the cross too. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. The crucifixion is not just a fact about Christ, but a part of every Christian's personal story. This is what we are displaying when we put someone under the water in their baptism. They're showing that they have died with Christ. Oh friend, we should meditate on the fact that Christ has been crucified for us. And we need to go even further and consider that it was as if we ourselves were on that cross. As far as God is concerned, that is the reality. And when we become a Christian, the Christ who died for us actually lives in us. It is I who no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a new I. I do still live But look who it is. It is no longer an eye who craves self-reliance, self-confidence, self-direction, or self-exaltation. The new eye looks away from itself and trusts in the Son of God, whose love and power was proved at Calvary. From the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you fall asleep at night, the new eye of faith despairs of itself and looks to Christ for protection and motivation, courage, direction, and enablement to walk in joy and peace and righteousness. Crucifixion ends one way of life and opens up another. It finishes a life in which one lives for self and begins a life which one lives for God. There is now a new reality. Grace is a gift given through Christ's death on the cross. If we start arguing that we must achieve salvation through our works, do you see what we're doing? Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's everything or it's nothing. If justification is by works, then Christ's death is meaningless. Imagine that your house was burning down and your whole family had escaped. Everyone's out. And I said to you outside the house during the fire, let me show you how much I love you. I'm going to run into the house. And I ran into the house and I died. What a tragic and pointless waste of a life you probably think. But now imagine your house is on fire and one of your children is trapped in the house. Everyone's out except for that kid. And I say to you, let me show you how much I love you. I run into the house and I save your baby. But along the way, I perish. You would think, look at how much that man loved us. If we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless. It means nothing. If we realize we can't save ourselves, Christ's death will mean everything to us. We will spend the life that He has given us in joyful service of Him, bringing our whole lives in line with the gospel. In reality, we offend God when we say we need to do something. When we do that, we say that what God has done in Christ Jesus on the cross is not enough. Yeah, it did something, but it really didn't pay the full penalty for my sins. We minimize the cross. You say that you're better than God because the cross didn't cut it, so you need to go out and do it yourself. You make yourself bigger than God. All of our works are merely gratitude and thanksgiving and worship for the salvation we already have. We come to God freely on the basis of what He has already done, regardless of how we're feeling or what kind of day we had. I heard Don Carson give a good illustration of this, and I'll close with this. Just consider one of your mornings. You wake up late, your alarm fails to go off, you're exhausted, your spouse is grumpy, you can't find any clean socks. You don't have time for a decent breakfast, and so you leave slurping a quick glass of orange juice. No time for your coffee. You run to the car as quick as you can. You turn the ignition, and it doesn't start. Your battery is dead again. You knew you should have taken care of it, but you failed, and so you run out. You grab a taxi as quick as you can at the taxi stand. You get to work. You're late. Your boss chews you out. You think, oh, this is going to be a bad day. You go to the water cooler at a break time, and you overhear a rumor that your whole department may go redundant by the end of the year. And you just can't believe it. You go home, you're exhausted, your whole family's gone. There's a little note on the counter that says, I left out week-old chicken for you if you're hungry tonight. Your kids finally come home and they're angry. They're screaming at one another. They're in a bad mood. And then you become, become angry at them. You yell at them. You lash out at them. You raise your voice to them. You realize you haven't reacted well. And you go to sleep and you say a quick prayer. Dear Father, this hasn't been a very good day. I haven't reacted very well. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better tomorrow. Bless everyone. Amen. Am I the only one that's had a day like that? (laughs) But there are other days. Days you wake up to your alarm, you had a full night's rest... You stretch in bed, the sun is out, and the birds are singing. There's a delicious smell of crisp bacon and eggs radiating from the kitchen to your bedroom. The coffee is ready, and your favorite mug is already put out. Your car starts fine, and you go to the water cooler on that day, and your boss comes up to you and says, Hey, I'm going to put you up for this big new promotion. And then another guy comes around who you've been wanting to share the gospel with, and you share the gospel with him, and you invite him to church, and he says, I promise I'm going to be there on Friday. And you're so excited, you come home, and when you come home, there's a tenderloin filet mignon on the grill, <laughs> cooked to perfection. Your kids run up to you with their Bibles and say, Daddy, will you do a family devotion tonight? They're so excited they don't want it to end, and they ask you for story after story. Then they answer every single one of their catechism questions correctly. They want you to go over it over and over again. And then, silently, they walk over, kiss you goodnight, and say, Daddy, Mommy, we're going to go walk to bed now. And they go to bed quietly and fall asleep without a single word. Well, that night, you lay in bed, and your prayer goes something like this. Oh, eternal and majestic Heavenly Father, Oh, in the fullness of your grace, I bow down before you at the end of this magnificent day. Thank you for your faithful blessings to your humble servant. You go on and on. You start praising God for propitiation and reconciliation. You start praying for every missionary you've ever heard of. And you pray for each of their kids, name by name. And you go on and on and on. And then you go to bed. Justified. Now, Don Carson goes on and says, you've been a pagan both times. You have the amazing audacity to think you enter into the presence of a holy God on the basis of what kind of day you had and how you behaved. Is there anything more demeaning to grace than that? Anything more destructive to justification? It's like spitting on the cross of Christ, and yet... And yet, we do it all the time. Friends, do you see how the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone transforms our lives? Through Christ we are justified. We can boldly approach the throne of grace freely all the time. Rightly understanding the sufficiency of the cross touches all of our values. We are justified in the bad days and we are justified in the good days. We've been justified because Christ loves us and gave himself for us. Everything else is false religion. Any kind of self-justification is a means of hypocrisy. We end up not living out what we believe. Christian friend, I urge you live in light of your justification today. You have been declared righteous. When God sees you, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees you as a new creation. Christ is in you. It's utterly remarkable that God has showered his grace over us in this way. Oh, let us pray now and give him thanks for this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that we would live in light of our justification. Father, that we would live loving lives out of response to Christ's death on our behalf. Would these truths this morning revolutionize our lives? And would we live this day? Would we live tomorrow? Would we live next week, next year, our entire lives by faith? God, in the good days and the bad days, in the tough times and the good times, in our failures and our successes, would we come to you as those already justified, declared righteous, righteous, Father, we pray this in the faithful name of Christ. Amen.